Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Ever since No Child Left Behind was signed into law in 2002, assessments have been a fixture of the education landscape, a very divisive one. But assessments have changed a lot over the last 20 years, and they're still changing to better meet the needs of students, teachers, schools, districts, and states. But what do these new assessments look like, and what are they capable of that old ones weren't? What can we look forward to next on the assessment front? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Arthur Vanderveen onto the podcast. Arthur Vanderveen is the CEO and founder of New Meridian, an assessment design and development company that serves over 2,500 school districts. Arthur was previously executive director of college readiness at the College Board and executive director of assessment and the chief of innovation for the New York City Department of Education. Arthur, welcome to the report card. Hey, great to be here, Nat. So, Arthur, it's been 20 years since No Child Left Behind. Since then, the landscape for assessments has really changed quite a bit. And I don't know if you noticed, but assessments seem to have gotten a lot of sort of negative sentiment over that time. There's some folks that don't really like tests. You run an assessment company. So let me put it to you straight. What's just the baseline argument for why we should have summative assessments in schools? Baseline argument comes out of the ESEA back in the civil rights era where we looked across and saw real variety in how schools were serving our kids and needed a standard measure uh, to hold all schools accountable. That's the impetus behind them. And that still continues today. We still have real variability in how our schools serve kids. And so having you know, a good, reliable, comparable measure really fits that use case. And it seems to me that when you just stay right there, the vast majority of people are going to say, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds reasonable. Of course, a lot depends on how we do that. Fair enough. And then from that fertile soil, many, many arguments against assessments grow. I'm sure you've heard tons of these. Can you share of the set of criticisms that you hear, which ones do you think are particularly valid and deserve serious attention? There are many, (laughs) to be fair. Uh, I think just starting simply with the end end of year state accountability assessment, I mean, the fact that it occurs too late to have any impact on instruction for that year, they're very disruptive to classroom teaching. And honestly, they lead teachers to teach to the test. And those are three of the kind of negative impacts of that single end of year summative. Arthur, you know, usually we have these discussions, they're kind of 20,000 feet up in the air, a little removed from actually the taking. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about what this looks like when students take assessments. I understand this is going to vary from state to state and so forth, but there's some typical experience. So generally speaking, can you just paint the basics? Like, are these now done on computers for the most part? Or are most kids still taking sort of paper and pencil on little bubble sheets? Are these two-hour affairs or two-day affairs? How does this typically work for the assessments that kids take, say, in grades three to eight? Yeah, I'll go back to my my time as uh, I, I ran assessments for New York City Department of Education. And every year when we ran the, the state test, 
we would be in classrooms and schools monitoring to ensure that there was you know, security around the assessment. And so it has uh, significant impacts on how a school is run during that week to 10 days when the tests are being administered. Students are in classrooms, signs are on the door, obviously it's quiet. You have separate rooms for students with IEPs and accommodations. It's quite an orchestration to, uh, to manage and those school level test uh, administrators have their hands full during, during that time. The uh, things have changed since 2009 when I was in New York City. Most testing is now done online. And for some period of time, that meant you cycled through the computer lab. And so that was additional logistics that you had to manage. Now with the ubiquity of devices, uh, they're generally done in classrooms on uh, devices. And uh, it's really almost, uh, our assessments are about 98% online computer-based testing uh, with just accommodations for students who, who need paper-based forms. And is that the case sort of across the nation that the sort of average test is no longer paper pencil, but it's going to be done on computers? Is that what most students are experiencing? That is. Most states now have gone to online, especially if you're doing any kind of an adaptive assessment. It certainly has to be online and at least half the states are doing adaptive tests. So most are online now. And an adaptive test is a test where the next question or task that you get is dependent on how you did on the last one. So it sort of narrows in more specifically on how well you're doing. Am I stating that correctly? Yeah, there's a couple of flavors of adaptive, but generally it adapts to how you're doing. And so you can serve up the next set of questions or each question uh, at a level where the, the test is getting more information rather than testing the student either too low or too high above the student's readiness. Arthur, can you talk a little bit about what a good assessment question looks like? I mean, what does it take to develop a question so that it does what you think it does on a test? You have to start with what you want it to do. And that's a really critical part of the overall test design. So when you think about what a fourth grade student should be able to do in math, you're of course, you're looking at the standards and those expectations. But there are different approaches to testing. And just generally, you could look at pretty superficial recall of information. It's really easy to write items, which test questions are in the industry are called items. Uh, really easy to, to write those uh, questions that just test superficial recall of information. If you're focusing on critical thinking, mathematical modeling, mathematical reasoning, those become more sophisticated. And the standards generally across the states expect that level of engagement with content. So now you're writing, hopefully, better questions that ask a student not only what what process do you have or what information do you have, but how can you apply that uh, in a creative way to solve a problem? Uh, that's where you bring in the critical thinking. So the, the kind of workflow for that is you get generally people who have been teachers, uh, educators, they know the standards inside and out. They also know how students learn and develop those uh, that knowledge and skills. And they write uh, items to those standards. Then it goes through a review process with subject matter experts 
who look at it not only from is this accurate and aligned to the content of the standards, uh, but is it a good item? Will it uh, test what we want it to test? Will it not test things that aren't what we're focusing on? That's a whole review process. Uh, you get that test item ready, and then you take it and you actually put it in front of kids. And you, you test all of your items in a way that uh, doesn't count toward their score. It's called field testing. And you get data back on those items. And then we evaluate, does the data show that this is a well-performing item? If so, then we add it to the operational test. It actually counts towards a student's score uh, during the next year's operational test. So it's a, it's a lengthy process. There's a lot of uh, eyes that touch those items. I'd say one other really critical piece to this is fairness uh, and accessibility on those test questions. We have committees of uh, educators who look and make sure there's no implicit bias to a test item to make sure it's going to uh, be accessible to all students fairly, not advantage one student population over another. So it's a lengthy process, takes a lot of investment. You know, a typical test item costs between three and $10,000 uh, for each item to be developed. So that's kind of where I was going with that leading question. I mean, I've been engaged with this long enough to understand if each item costs, you know, $3,500 to $10,000 to develop, and you have a test bank that has hundreds of items, this is a pretty expensive proposition. And folks should appreciate the fact that it takes a long time to get these tests to do exactly what they're supposed to do. So sort of pivoting or making change in here is often difficult, especially if it's going to require developing a whole new set of items as opposed to finding items that have already been developed and then applying them in new ways. Yes. A lot of people's experience with writing test questions is classroom uh, quizzes or test banks that uh, maybe a district will have teachers develop. And those are fine, and they're generally aligned to what's being taught. Their quality certainly varies. But when you're bringing it in to get a measure of our students actually learning the standards to the degree that the standards expect, uh, and then ultimately that educators, schools, districts, and uh, the federal government expects, it's a lot of investment to make sure the quality and fairness is really meeting expectations. So you started New Meridian in 2016. No Child Left Behind, which kicked off a, sort of a new age in assessments by requiring them for all students, grades three to eight, once in high school, really changed things. Can you give us a little bit of setup here? The history between that 2002 point and 2016, just give me a thumbnail of how assessments sort of shifted in the intervening years to the point that you started New Meridian. Sure. So NCLB 2001 really kicked off the statewide summative assessment kind of industry or regime. And the way it was structured, those you know states created their own tests. There was not any kind of common measure, certainly not any common standards, and generally viewed as a mile wide and an inch deep. And those are the kinds of tests that uh, focus on simple recall of information clearly had, uh, I think, impacts on classroom practice, which was teaching to the test in a very narrow way. I'd say the next big shift was with Race to the Top in 
2011, and the release of the Common Core State Standards. Uh, and whether states adopted those or not, next generation standards were clearly focused on deeper engagement with content, evidence-based reasoning, and tests had to adapt to that. So uh, the two consortia, PARC and Smarter Balanced, uh, tried to respond to developing better tests, and, and I think honestly they did, uh, with a real focus on that deeper engagement with content. Uh, and we've had better assessments uh, since because of it. In uh, 2015, with uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, uh, that began a time of really a return to kind of state control over, at least over accountability. Uh, and the, the new law, ESSA, allowed for a lot more innovation and flexibility. And this is what's ushered in, uh, I think, states now uh, beginning to try different approaches to their accountability assessment, primarily the biggest being a through-year design um, other kind of flavors are more holistic assessments, more performance-based, portfolio-based. But ESSA uh, and the Innovation Demonstration uh, IDEA uh, allows states to do more flexibility in how they test all of their students. So, Arthur, you dropped a bunch of jargon there, I'm sure not intending to, but you said uh, through year and you said project-based and so forth. Can you just explain what a project-based assessment and then what does that through year refer to? Yeah, a project-based or a performance-based assessment generally, from a state perspective, states will start with a portrait of a graduate and the portrait includes uh, competencies that are broader than just the academic measures, more of the durable skills, readiness for workforce, uh, civic engagement, those things. Anchored in that more holistic view of what a, a student graduating high school should, should look like, they'll uh, often develop um, more performance tasks that might be interdisciplinary. And Utah, for example, is a state. Uh, South Carolina has also anchored in this they're looking for really different approaches to more holistic measures of students' capabilities, competencies. Uh, through year is described in a way that the, the goal is to not have that single end-of-year measure of students' mastery of the, of the grade-level standards. Instead, you break it up into parts and you administer through the year uh, and then from those uh, through-year measures, you build an accountability measure. And that's the three. And there's a variety of different flavors for through-year uh, assessments as well. Sure. That just helps with some of the jargon. And we're going to talk about those things. But look, we have a section in this podcast called Grade It, where we ask people to grade things. And we are not there yet. But if you had to grade assessments between the onset of No Child Left Behind and 2015, what grade would you give them? Oh, I'd start with NCLB assessments uh, about a D. And then I'd say after Race to the Top with Next Generation State uh, Assessments, excuse me, uh, I'd give a B. I think this uh, generation of assessments, they really do focus on that deeper engagement with content. And uh, I think obviously... The jury's still out on more innovative models that are now emerging, but I think there's real promise for uh, very high quality, more instructionally aligned uh, accountability assessments. We're on our way toward an A. 
So I'm pretty certain that you would say New Meridian is working on moving from that B to A. Give us a thumbnail. What is New Meridian? What did you start it to do? What was the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, the initial objective was the the then park states were transitioning out of a consortium facing a lot of political headwinds. And they were looking for a new organization to help them transition. And Arthur, let me just interrupt to make sure that listeners know what PARC is. This is one of the consortium that came after Race to the Top, where a bunch of states got together and said, we'll share one test and we'll sort of do it by committee. And that way we'll share one large test bank and share some of these very expensive item development costs. And so it was a super set of states that shared in a consortium the park tests. Did I capture that right? Exactly right. You can share state resources. Uh, you get efficiencies of scale. I mean, honestly, it's, it's ridiculous how much money is spent in this country developing new items every year that are essentially measuring the same standards. The consortia came together like, well, why don't we just share that investment uh, and use those shared banks of items? And then the other benefit of that was we could compare test scores across states, right? Yeah, that was a core value proposition of the consortia. You never hear that anymore. That's really dropped by the wayside. So anyway, back to New Meridian in this context. Uh, So when I was, uh, again, in New York City, I was close to the development of the park assessment, really believed it was a very high quality assessment. And so uh, when the then park states were looking for new leadership, uh, I founded New Meridian to come in and help them transition to a more flexible model. They could develop their own uh, blueprints, work with their own delivery vendor, uh, but still maintain those economies of scale. And one other thing that I was very attracted to was there was an entrepreneurial dimension to it that they had these large banks of really high quality items and they were looking for someone who could make them available to other states to incorporate into their test designs on a licensing model. So that was the original kind of problem to solve. It was an operational problem, a financial problem, technical problem, and I was very much drawn to that. I would say now we're you know, seven years into this. And with the pandemic, uh, states are really looking for something different. And it, it is time to rethink assessment. And Numeridian has been focused on what this next generation of assessments could look like for the last three years. Lots of conversations with states, uh, districts, teachers, uh, even students. We've been doing lots and lots of research into what new models could look like And that's what we're currently investing in. So I want to get back to New Meridian in a moment. But right now, we're going to do Grade It. Are you game? Uh, Let's go. Let's do it. All right. Test optional college admissions. I give it a B. (laughs) You know, I I worked at the college board for many years. And uh, I I drank a little bit of that Kool-Aid. And, uh, you know, following the research in, in California, Those assessments can identify students who are overlooked by their local uh, school systems, and they can show potential where their grades uh, may not. And I think there's a positive impact, uh, can be a positive impact, but you have access issues, uh, kind of test prep, all of those which reflect kind of the socioeconomic status of those students. So it's a vexed problem. I think generally, 
uh, high school transcript is the best indicator of college readiness. And so that's why I think it's a, it's a little closer, you know, YB than, uh, than not. Fair enough. Teaching Faulkner in high school. <laughs> uh, a, <laughs> I, my PhD is in, in American uh, lit. I wrote part of my dissertation on Faulkner. So uh, I may be a little, I may have blind spots or a bias, but uh, I think Faulkner's focus on history and the power of tradition and story to shape uh, our lives in the present is really, really compelling. What do you think is Faulkner's best work? Uh, As I Lay Dying is really uh, innovative, uh, compelling. Um, Sound and the Fury, not so accessible, but also really powerful. Um, Yeah, uh, now, now I'm reaching back decades here, so. Fair enough. Admissions at New York's specialized schools. Oh my God, you're throwing hard ones. Uh, so I did, I was responsible for the Shazat uh, in New York City, which is the admissions test for the specialized high schools. And I would say while technically a very high quality assessment, uh, I think it is very narrow uh, in what it tests. And I think it does exclude students uh, who don't have that kind of focus preparation either through their classroom uh, instruction or more broadly with test prep like many students do. So I don't think it's the most effective uh, kind of tool for determining access to those uh, high schools. So grade? Oh, uh, Great on using the Shazat for accessibility or um, admissions, I would say a C. So I think it's very interesting that you make so clear the definition between the technical aspects of the test and the application of it. How about the potential impact of AI on student assessments? Uh, I'm bullish on AI uh, for assessments. So I'm uh, cautiously thinking an A at this point. We're looking into how AI can really offer efficiencies in, uh, in test item development, uh, as well as data analytics on student response patterns, which can uh, link to instructional interventions. Uh, I think there's tremendous potential for AI. Of course, as with all of our technical work, we have to be careful about bias, uh, hallucinations, uh, inaccuracies, uh, which is where the the human element comes in. But I'm very bullish on AI. How about John Dewey as an education thinker? Would you stop? (laughs) Uh, You should get assessed every once in a while. I think this is fair, Arthur. This is what you do for a living. Oh, my. Uh, I think Dewey's kind of constructivist model of how students learn is um, very compelling. And so, you know, the more we can present students with uh, kind of challenging engagement with, you know, content or the real world, uh, the more we can foster their inquiry, their curiosity, their problem solving. Uh, I think uh, Dewey is a foundational writer and thinker for American pedagogy. 
prison education programs? Uh, a, uh, all for them. Um, How about the ones that exist? Are they functioning well? So uh, I've sp- <laughs> spent a little time in prisons. Um, uh, I was a uh, chaplain at a uh, maximum security print prison in, in Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, so I've seen the environment in which all uh, kind of support programs within prisons, uh, they're constrained, obviously, um, but the folks who work to deliver them are very committed people who uh, care about the inmates and want to help them thrive. So uh, more funding certainly could go, I think more uh, holistic support, uh, kind of like a community-based school. If you could provide more holistic support, the academic outcomes would also improve. Um, so I would give them a C. Okay. Well, that's all for Grade It. A couple of more questions. I want to push on this through-year assessment idea. You've said even, even here, high-quality assessments have a significant impact on classroom instructional practice. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, the truth is the incentives are aligned to have um, principals, well, district administrators, principals, and teachers teach to the test. And so if the objective is to just get students who are on the bubble over the proficiency threshold, they're going to focus instruction on what's most likely to help those kids uh, reach proficiency. If it's a bad test, uh, you know, measuring superficial recall, you get uh, teachers are drawn to drill and kill on those skills. And those are decontextualized, not within uh, a, a robust curriculum. And that is a bad impact on, on classroom practice. If it's a good test, uh, and I think New Meridian develops the best tests in the industry, we focus on that critical thinking, deep engagement with content, strong focus on written expression. Those things also have an impact on classroom practice because teachers focus on developing those deeper skills. So are there, what about the through year aspect of this? I mean, there's lots of people who will complain for a number of reasons about the high stakes test, but another aspect of it isn't just the stakes, but just sort of how it takes over in late April or whenever. Usually it's about what, 75%, maybe 80% of the year is done with, which never makes a ton of sense to me. How much does that single time point when we make this assessment shape the way school runs and how essential is it? Yeah, it has a huge impact. I mean, and, you know, now 20 years, we've just come to believe it's how school is done. It's, you know, established pattern, established routine to have this end of year summative really between the end of March and uh, in mid-May. And uh, it's it's very disruptive to overall instruction. So uh, the idea of a through year is you, you break that up into small pieces that uh, are done throughout the year. Let's start just with the most basic model. You Generally, three times a year, you test what was taught in the fall and then mid-year and then end of year. And uh, ideally, you're, at least that model is delivering more instructional value uh, than you get when those scores are returned back in August for the following year. So that's one improvement. 
the problem we're trying to solve is not just the timeliness of the data, but the alignment to what's taught. So unlike most assessments or through year that are currently either operational or being piloted, we take an approach that's little mini assessments that are aligned to clusters of standards that are coherent and align with a taught curriculum. We look at high quality curricula, we look at how concepts are introduced, we align to those. But even if you're not using a specific curricula, that smaller grain size can be aligned to your local scope and sequence. That's giving immediate feedback to what was actually taught uh, at the time. And uh, our preliminary research shows that's uh, a much better way to test. Uh, it's the number one thing that um, states and educators ask for when they talk about next generation assessments. They want it aligned to what they're teaching in the classroom. And then, you know, I can hear right now critics saying, so you want to have one disruptive event and turn it into three disruptive events? I'm assuming you're doing something on those three administrations, which makes them less disruptive? Yeah. So our model is actually more flexible. We support, you know, generally between four and six administrations throughout the year. Each of them, however, is just a class period. And so instead of doing, you know, locking down for three and a half hours each day over five days, we're administering smaller classroom-based, classroom-length assessments that are much less disruptive to the overall uh, kind of instructional model of a school. And then the other thing to understand about this is that when the summative assessments come, they are disruptive to a student. So let's just say you have a student and he takes a three-hour assessment or she takes two separate assessments. Each of the periods are 100 minutes long over two days. But oftentimes it disrupts the entire school because every student or a large number of students have to take them and the school has to be quiet and the operations have to be changed for a set period. So when you're solving for this, well, the big summative assessment is a hassle. You don't just solve for a given classroom. You really solve for a five to seven school day period. Is that conjecture or am I getting that about right? No, that, that's uh, exactly right. And we're at least only about a 50-minute test, so that's very different. I'll be honest, we're still, we're in pilot in Montana and Louisiana right now, and we're looking at what, what it looks like on the ground. There are certain requirements of peer review from the feds for a summative test in terms of security, and that's why schools are, are locked down. So we're questioning how much security is really needed in order to preserve the validity of those, of those scores. So we're trying to diminish the footprint as much as possible to be as, least, as little disruptive as possible. Well, Arthur, you brought up the Fed, so let me pull on that thread. I mean, ESSA, the federal law governing this, has requirements for summative state assessments. The general requirement is for summative state assessments, right? Not this through year. How much room is there in the ESSA framework for this kind of innovation, for through-year tests, for states to really explore options that they might want to? You mentioned Montana. You mentioned Cade Brumley in Louisiana. I know that DeSantis earlier this year, whether it was for assessment reasons or political reasons, I'm not sure, but he's announced, you know, we're not doing the federal assessments anymore. How much room is there in the federal law 
to explore these options? It's explicitly written in that in ESSA that states their accountability assessment can be a three-year model. Uh, there is flexibility in ESSA. That was also furthered by the Innovative Assessment Demonstration Authority. Now I got that right. Uh, which is in ESSA that allows certain states to apply for even more flexibility. And then most recently with the Competitive Grants for State Assessments, CGSA, feds uh, are providing funding for states to pilot these new models. So there's room, flexibility, and now funding to help states uh, move in this direction. So, Arthur, you mentioned Montana and Louisiana. You have some pilots running there. Can you just give us a little bit more specifics about what that looks like? And also, what does it take for New Meridian to start up with a state and try something new? Yeah, we're working with two really forward-looking state superintendents, Elsie Arnson in in Montana and Kate Brumley in Louisiana, who... uh, believe in the power or the priority of focusing on student learning. And so they were eager to try new models that could better align assessment to instruction and support teachers in the classroom. And that at the heart is what we're doing. We're just finished our first year of pilots in both states. Uh, We had about 5,000 students total using our new mini assessment model, our three-year model. Uh, and we've used this first year to get a lot of feedback from students and teachers. And again, the most important thing we're hearing back from them is they want it aligned to what they're teaching in the classroom and getting that greater flexibility uh, and timely feedback on what they're teaching. Uh, to get started, we, uh, we actually had a fair amount of philanthropic funding to help us uh, develop a proof of concept that we could then bring into pilot with these two states and both states won uh, competitive grants for state assessments awards. And so there's funding there. And we're on a, a three-year timeline with those states to prove out these models and make them available uh, for their operational delivery and their uh, reported scores to the feds. And then, of course, when you do these through your assessments, there must be some sort of mathematical magic behind the scenes that enables you to take test scores that are taken in late October and late January and March, and then one more in May, and then come up with a score that might compare with another student in the same state who took an assessment in mid-April in one fell swoop. How difficult is that equating? Is that something that people should be concerned about, or is that something that's actually relatively straightforward? Yeah, that's a great question. And you, you named the technical challenges that we're, we're working on because uh, ESSA does uh, require comparability in, within a state. And so every student uh, has to have a, a comparable, reliable and comparable measure of their mastery of state standards. And so if you have students taking these tests at different times on, on different standards, how does that aggregate up to uh, a comparable summative score? One of the challenges we're taking on is both the summative score and the uh, formative value of the the mini assessments for classroom practice. And one of the innovative things we're doing is we're using two different scoring models to derive both of those scores because they're very different. And so we're using a set of psychometric designs called cognitive diagnostic modeling for the classroom instruction 
uh, and then we're using you know, this typical scaling for the summative score to ensure its uh, comparability and reliability. What we're finding in this first year of preliminary data is the summative score is not the challenge. We have actually more data than we do from a single end of year snapshot. And so our reliability calculations are really strong. So I don't think we'll have any trouble meeting peer review uh, for that score. So we're really homing in on making sure we're giving instructionally useful information for the classroom. That's the, the biggest challenge we're trying to address. So Arthur, I've talked with people before and they've said the real problem is that these state assessments don't really get the information back to teachers. And frequently my response has been, well, you know, that's not why we do them. We don't do them to inform classroom practice. And lo and behold, they don't actually inform classroom practice. I mean, they do indirectly, but not directly. But what you're saying is the throughput assessments can be brought to bear such that they can bring additive formative assessment information that can shape practice and help inform teachers about how their students are doing. So I guess this is a long way of asking, should I stop telling people that that's not what these assessments could be used for or or might be used for? Well, three-year could be used for that. Of course, the the traditional end-of-year summative is not designed for that. And so it's it's an entirely different uh, kind of purpose and use. But we start with, like right now, we're looking at all the different scope and sequences in Montana and Louisiana that our uh, pilot schools are using. And we're designing our mini assessments in a way that will support and give formative feedback on how concepts are taught, introduced, and developed through those scope and sequences. Uh, And then reporting back to teachers, we're looking at you know our reports and saying, is this information instructionally useful? What would you do with this information? And that gets incorporated into our blueprinting and our design and our item design. We are really investing on making sure we're giving more diagnostic, formative, useful information to teachers in the classroom. Are there several years ago, I wrote a paper on assessments that actually tracks with a lot of what you're doing. And we'll put a link in the show notes in case people are interested in that old paper. So I'm very interested in this work. But one of the things that motivated that paper was I use a lot of assessments in the data work that I do just as a barometer for school district performance. And there was a plague back around 2014-15 in the rotor wash of the Common Core days when states would have political problems and blame it on the test. So they would say, well, it's this test provider, you know, ABC testing, and they are politically unpalatable. So we're going to pull out that test and replace it with a different test. And that was pretty disruptive. I often thought those disruptions were not really warranted. Um, But I also wonder how you see the political landscape now, which I think for states and education is pretty charged about the likelihood that New Meridian or just the state assessments that we have working can catch that same sort of disruptive patterns that we saw back in 2013 and 14 and 15, where entire testing regimes were broken and then maintaining consistent scoring over years became impossible. I mean, is that just a problem that will be with us or is there anything that can minimize those kind of political interruptions in assessing students over time? 
Yeah, 2014-2015 were uh, interesting years uh, for the history of accountability assessment. I think that was very much an artifact of the pushback of the perceived federal overreach with the two consortia. And so states were leaving park and smarter balance and and looking for new vendors just to develop their custom state assessment, uh, which caused a lot of issues with the uh, longitudinal data. Fast forward to the pandemic uh, and after and the recognition that without that data, we were flying blind with very little visibility into which students at what grade levels in what subjects uh, were most impacted uh, by the disruption in schooling. And what we're seeing is people aren't generally questioning the tests any longer. They want uh, that benchmark so that they can navigate the recovery that is so critical right now. So, Arthur, we just look back seven years, looking ahead seven years. What do you think assessments will look like around 2030? And what are the major changes that need to happen to get us there? Now, I think we are on the precipice of finally realizing some of the promise of more personalized competency-based learning. It's been a vision for a long time. And in some ways, the traditional summative assessments have been a barrier to that. But as we get increasingly more flexible assessments that can align to what students are being taught as they're being taught, even down to the individual student level, Uh, I think that's where we're headed. I think the technical kind of psychometrics and the data analytics and the quality of the instructional content is all moving in that direction and the delivery of that content is all moving in that direction. So I'd see kind of a North Star of moving toward that more personalized learning, mastery-based learning model. What it's going to take to get there, uh, I think one of the biggest would just be more federal support for R&D, research and development on these new models and giving states the time and the flexibility and the funding to uh, kind of work with technical advisors and vendors to get these new designs into the field and evaluate them uh, so that they're meeting both that really critical bar for comparability and reliability for accountability purposes and really delivering on that personalized learning model. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Arthur Vanderveen. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other folks will find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.